Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before this week's podcast, I've got some exciting news to share with everyone. I've started a Patreon site. Now, on there are brand new video podcasts so you can see me and lots more besides. It's a general hub, I hope, for fans of history, fans of archaeology, travel enthusiasts. I suppose, above all else, it's for all-round admirers of an open-minded approach to life, to love and everything in between. It's about seeing how the lessons of history the glimpses we catch of the past can help us to find comfort and navigate our way through the confusion of the modern world. To join and get access, all you have to do is sign up. You can find Neil Oliver on the Patreon website, follow the links on this podcast or on the Neil Oliver Love Letter Instagram. You'll help to support this podcast as well as getting exclusive access to the new video podcasts. I must say and stress that the love letter to the British Isles is and always will be free. In the meantime, here's this week's love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. You'll never again in your life have the opportunity to stand beside or in the shadow of anything in the whole of Europe that's been alive for longer. In this podcast, we're walking in a magical glen, the loveliest in Scotland, according to Sir Walter Scott, before being whisked off to Rome and into the history books. Legend has it that Pontius Pilate was born here, somewhere that has always mattered to our ancestors, a place of striking beauty that invites deep contemplation and found within it still fit and healthy despite its colossal, almost unimaginable age is what's believed to be the oldest living thing in Europe I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you me and the whole world I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles Hi Neil. 
Last week, we found out you've been the warm-up act to Bono and U2 on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury. <laughs> Where are we now? Yeah, don't you forget it. <laughs> don't let anyone forget I was the warm-up act for U2 in 2011. Shout it from the rooftops. Uh, well, this week we're far, as far from the madding, raucous crowds and loud music of Glastonbury, maybe as a person could hope to get, uh, to the gentle, dappled light uh, in the shadow of ancient trees, in one of the most beautiful, loneliest glens in Scotland. This week we're in Perthshire to encounter the legendary Fortingall Yew. The destination, or the, the source of the love letter this week, is the Fortingall Yew, as in Yew Tree, and it's in Glen Lyon, around about the middle part of Scotland. And it's another of those ones that, that stands out a little bit like the the Amesbury Archer or the Alfred Jewel in a way, in that because it's a tree, I suppose you might say it's more of a thing than a place. But it is very much a destination. And the reasons for being confident in calling it a destination will become clear, I think, you know, as, as our conversation unfolds. And I'll freely admit it brings out the the kind of dreamer in me. The idea or the possible reality of the Fortingall U just blows my mind. It opens my mind up to all sorts of images and, and ideas and thoughts. It's just the most extraordinary entity, I would say. So, the reason for it, yew trees are, are, are quite special in amongst the whole family of trees. The yew is quite something. They're amongst the trees that are especially long-lived. You know, so you've got the, the sequoia in California, there's the bristlecone pines, uh, there's the baobabs in Africa. Trees that live for, not hundreds, but for thousands of years. And the yew tree is one of those. Its special gift, I suppose you would say, is its power to regenerate. A yew tree, if, if it's cut down, even right down at the ground surface, and you would think it was dead... It has regenerative powers, so it will send forth new life just from the roots. And so it's been a potent symbol of life for thousands of years. And it was certainly picked up on by Christians because it tied in with the idea of Jesus having been crucified and died and then sprung back to life. And so because the yew tree exhibits the same potential. The early Christians latched on to yew trees where they found them. And, and you quite often will find a yew tree, an old yew tree that was planted in a churchyard. And it's also a good idea for practical reasons to keep a yew tree behind a wall <laughs> because the berries are toxic for cattle. And you think even the leaves. Wood from yew trees is also known for making brilliant bows, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, you know, f famously the longbow, the, the English longbow that was used to such deadly effect at Agincourt and other famous medieval battles are made of the good red yew, as they called it. I think because the wood is slow growing, it's very strong. I mean, if you've ever tried to draw something that's been built to the dimensions required for a warboat that would have shot an arrow for in excess of 200 metres with pinpoint accuracy. 
if you ever get the opportunity to try and pull one of those, you can't. You simply can't because they're so strong. The flexibility is there, but that's why the, the archers, the longbowmen of yore, were trained from boyhood. It was compulsory that they practice daily, weekly, from boyhood onwards to develop the necessary musculature and the muscle memory that enabled them to operate these things. If I gave you a war bow made of you, <laughs> there'd be nothing you could do with it. You wouldn't even be able to bend it enough to get the string on it. They're incredibly strong. So yes, for most people, they might have heard of yew trees in the context of churchyards because they're, they're so commonplace in, in Christian churchyards. But the other way in which people would have been familiar with yew is that the wood of the yew tree was famously used to create these astonishing uh, bits of kit that were so dominant in the battlefields of the you know, 13th and 14th and 15th centuries. So, within the family of, of trees, yew trees are pretty special. And the Fortingall yew is in the village of Fortingall, which is in Glen Lyon. The Glen Lyon is... Well, it's a special place. Sir Walter Scott, great Scottish author, called Glen Lyon the longest, loveliest and loneliest in all of Scotland. And so it is. The Glen's about 25 miles long. It stretches from Fortingall into the west all the way to Loch Lyon. And there are good reasons, archaeological reasons especially, for thinking that, or for knowing that it mattered to people for, for thousands of years. Archaeologists have found settlements going back to the Neolithic and also then into the Bronze Age and into the Iron Ages. So there's been people there for a long time. And they've found artefacts there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those valleys within Scotland, within Britain. There's another in Scotland called Kilmartin, over towards the west, that has a similarly long life in terms of its having pulled people into it for unknown thousands of years. But Fortingall, we've always got to get back to Fortingall and to the yew tree. It's in a, a churchyard in Fortingall, which is a very, a, it's a very pretty little place. It was largely developed in the latter part of the 19th century. There was a, a wealthy shipowner and philanthropist called Sir Donald Curry, and he bought large tracts of land, and the school was built and the church was built, and it, it's a, it's a pretty little place. But the thing about the Fortingall yew is it's dendrochronologists, the scientists who measure the age of trees and, and tree specialists, they'll certainly allow that the Fortingall U is 3,000 years old as a sort of a benchmark, as a line in the sand. You'd say it's 3,000 years old. But there are some, there are enough, who allow for the possibility that it's 9,000 years old. 9,000 years old. <laughs> now... That's where my mind starts to open up like a flip-top bin. <laughs> 9,000 years old. Because that would make the Fortingall you the oldest living thing in the whole of Europe. Now pause and take a breath and think about that. Because if it's 9,000 years old, that means that tree has been growing and living while everything we care about has happened. We've talked before in the love letter, the Montrose Basin in Scotland has evidence of the Storega slide, which caused the tsunami that cut what had been a peninsula of Europe into a set of islands, and we've been islands ever since. Now that was 8,000 years ago. 
So that means that by the time that happened, the Fortingall you might already have been a thousand years old. Right, so this isn't this is old. So when everyone came, when the hunters walked in dry shod into the peninsula of northwestern Europe that became the British Isles, the Fortingall U was there. And elsewhere in the world, while civilizations, Mesopotamia, Ur, Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Rome, rise and fall, world wars, industrial revolutions, man to the moon, the internet. All of that has happened, metaphorically speaking, in the shadow of the Fortingall U. Now, I can't imagine living inside a head that doesn't find that impossibly fascinating, just as a possibility. Utterly, utterly captivates me. And, and for obvious reasons, it's inspired people to think all sorts of things. In Scotland, and in Fortingall in particular, there's an abiding tradition or a belief that Pontius Pilate was a Scot. Now, Pontius Pilate, he's, he's one of those, I mean, how much can you really know about a character from the New Testament? According to Roman records, there was a man called Pontius Pilate who was the procurator of Judea from AD 26 to AD 36. That much Seems to be historical fact. You know, procurator means he was in charge. He was the Roman governor of, of that. Even even then, it was a hotbed of religious schism and and, and unrest and, and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but, but he it was that famously presided over the trial of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had suitably annoyed the Hebrew, the Jewish population, or some of them, among whom he lived, and they had him. They accused him of blasphemy, because he said he was the son of God. And they didn't like that, amongst other things. He was trouble as far as they were concerned, and they basically dobbed him in to the Roman authorities, and and, and they wanted an end of him, and they got it. And Pontius Pilate agreed to have him crucified, which was what those that were Christ's enemies had been after in the first place. So, th- so there's those, there's Pontius Pilate. You know, that's his infamous role. In history. But there's always been an abiding folk legend in Scotland that Pontius Pilate was born here. Now, Pontius Pilate may have been just a born Roman from somewhere within the territory that we know as Italy. There's other testimony or reasons for thinking he was a German or that he might have been a Spaniard. But in, in Scotland, they say no. Now, You have to allow yourself a moment to maybe possibly unpick what might be going on there. So where does this idea come from, this possibility that Pontius Pilate is a Scot? Well, we've discussed before in the context of the love letter that before the Claudian Roman invasion of Britain in 43-44 AD, there had been earlier attempts, and Julius Caesar certainly made a couple of attempts about 100 years before that, in the 50s BC, uh, he brought an army across and tried to claim Britain as Britannia, and it and it failed. He made two stabs at it, you know, one year after the other, and then I've uh, just abandoned the exercise. But it's perfectly legitimate to imagine that even before Caesar got there, that there were links between the Roman world and our archipelago, because you know there was stuff here that the Romans were interested in, you know, slaves for one thing, tin copper 
gold. There was stuff worth having. So it's perfectly reasonable to imagine that after Caesar's abortive attempt to take ownership, that the contact continued on. Because there, as well as being a military entity, the Roman Empire, you know, it was a business. It was a corporation. And so they would have maintained contact with our part of the world. So they'd have had agents, if you like, dotted about, people, you know, pressing the flesh, mixing, getting to know the locals, always nudging the possibility forward inch by inch of eventually successfully colonising these British Isles. So it's perfectly reasonable to imagine that as well as having made contacts in the south, they would have had agents in the north, in, in what the Romans knew or came to know as Caledonia. So you could have had Romans in Scotland, just checking the lie of the land. Now, it's known that in what we call Glenlyon and in Perthshire, there was a powerful local warlord called Metalanus. And no doubt, perfectly reasonable to think that the Romans would have made contact with him to curry favour with him. So if there, was a, if there was a small contingent of Romans there doing what they could, it's also not unreasonable to imagine that maybe one of them got involved with a local woman, a local woman from that tribe, and married, or some equivalent of married. And then a child is born to a, a Roman legionary and a local woman, and that that child, well, that could give you an explanation for the birth of Pontius Pilate. And then subsequently, according to the story, uh, the father, now with his wife and child, relocated back to elsewhere in the Roman Empire so that in adulthood, this Pontius Pilate who'd been born in Glenlyon is now in a position to become the procurator of Judea. So the story goes in Glenlyon that Pontius Pilate once sat beneath the Fortingall U which is just the most, it's just, the, the very idea of it, it's just another of those, we talk about the world being a small place, you know, as though it's our invention, and to some extent it is, obviously, you know, with the advent of modern travel and, and jet aircraft and all the rest of it, we've made the world smaller. But the connections were already international, even thousands of years ago. And it is, why not? Why wouldn't it be possible that somebody who starts out in life born in, in Fortingall subsequently ends up living out their adulthood elsewhere in the world. Now, Edwin Morgan, a great Scottish poet, and I think in 1984, or there or thereabouts, he wrote a poem. It's called um, Pilot at Fortingall. And it's all about the idea that at the end of his life, in his retirement, in his dotage, if you like, Pontius Pilate, as an old man, came back to Fortingall. And the poem has um, as this bedraggled, desperate madman who was seen around the neighbourhood going to, say, the cattle trough and washing his hands over and over again, as though he's riven with guilt about having allowed Jesus Christ to be crucified. And so he washes his hands endlessly, never satisfied that he has washed off the guilt. He does it over and over again. It's a, it's a wonderful, evocative poem. And it, you know, it brings to mind the, you know, the out-out damned spot that Lady Macbeth says... Uh, you know, the regicide of, of Duncan. And, and first of all, it's Macbeth, her husband, that can't sleep. He becomes insomniac because of because of his guilt. 
Macbeth has murdered sleep and, and Lady Macbeth takes the mickey out of him for a while but then she too, as the guilt begins to corrupt and corrode her she finds that she can't sleep and then she becomes preoccupied with blood on her hands that she can't wash off out, out, damned spot and so on so it's that idea of permanent, the mark of permanent guilt so that's woven through the story of the Fortingall you and when I when I come to think about the tree, when I come to think about the Fortingall you I'm never quite sure where to place it chronologically you know, this this love letter starts a million years ago with the footprints on the beach at Haysborough and it comes right through to modern times eventually. You know, it's 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 a it's a it's a love letter about about a million years of, of history. And and when I came to think about it and to talk about the Fortingall U, I was never quite sure where to place it. But not not least because there is uncertainty about its age, but I think about the Fortingall U a bit like the monolith in Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know that stone? It appears, first of all, on the moon, I think. Or it, and then it appears, you know, at times in, in Earth's ancient past and, you know, the ape creatures, th- you know, throw sticks at it and so on and so on. But the idea is that the monolith has just always been there. It's eternal. And I, I think about the Fortingall U in that way, that in, in terms of the human story, it feels like something that has always been there. You know, and I said at the start that it, it, it brings out the dreamer in me. I think about how the elements, the atoms that are in all of us are, are famously are, are the stuff of burned out stars. You know, everything of which we are made was created, forged, conjured into being in, inside stars. And when those stars died, those elements were scattered into the universe and they keep combining and recombining as other things. And they're in us for a while and then when we die the elements of which we are composed will scatter and then recombine elsewhere later on as other things. And I think about how, for a while, some of the elements of the universe have been in the form of the Fortingall U for 9,000 years. And perhaps the time will come when the Fortingall U is no more. It will finally die. It will finally come to the end of its life. And then those those elements will, will go out and become something else. In a sense, within my love letter to the British Isles, thinking about these hundred places that make up the love letter to the British Isles, the Fortingall U acts as my monolith, the monolith from 2001. It's there somehow in, in the background of everything, casting its arboreal shadow over everything. And surely its presence... England Lion will have been something that drew people. When we've talked about places like the Ness of Brodgar and Stonehenge and Avebury and Silbury Hill, and we've speculated about the possibility that word of the existence of those places spread far and wide into the ancient world so that people came on pilgrimage to see them. In relation to Stonehenge, we talked about the Amesbury Archer, the skeleton of the man who died and was buried around the time when the finishing touches were being put to Stonehenge. And I've certainly entertained the idea that he was drawn because from his place of birth, south of the Pyrenees, he'd heard about whatever they called Stonehenge and he came to see it and ended up living out the rest of his life there. Well, surely word of the tree that had been there forever 
would have spread and people would have come. I mean, wouldn't you go? If you heard about a tree that no one could remember a time when it wasn't there, you'd want to go and have a look at it. And so surely that explains why there's been such a long story of human occupation, habitation of Glenlyon. Because at least in part, people would have been drawn by the opportunity to stand in its shadows. There's all sorts of history dotted about. There's a little hill nearby, it's called Moot Hill. Within it, there's an ancient stone carved with a cross, and it's called St. Adovnan's Cross. Now, Adovnan was the man, the saint, who wrote the hagiography, the biography of Columba uh, on Iona. Uh, and it's Adovnan who's said to have chased the plague out of Glenlyon at some point during his life. And elsewhere in, in, the, in the valley, there's a grassy mound called the Cairn of the Dead, and it's said to mark a mass grave of villagers who died during a, a later outbreak of plague. And the tradition has it that only one old woman survived. Everyone else died, and this old woman took on the responsibility for looking after the bodies of the dead. And so all by herself, she dug the mass grave and put the bodies of all the villagers inside it and then raised this cairn on top of it. So there's all sorts of mystical, spiritual, emotional inspirations around Glenlyon and around Fortingall. And it seems undoubted to me that it's the tree, it's the tree that has inspired that. At different times, I mean, people have been making paintings and drawings of it down through the centuries. And more recently, obviously, there's been photographs of it. In 1769, the girth of it, if you put a, a, a string around the outside of its trunk in 1769, it was 52 feet. Wow. The life of the Fortingall U is like a kind of a wave. You know, it goes through crests and troughs, or it's like a light that's sometimes bright and sometimes dim. But the point is, it's still alive. It's still alive. When you walk in the Glen, do you find it to be as lovely as Walter Scott says? Well, <laughs> I do. I would consider it to be... If, if you like the... It's not like the Highlands. You know, the, the Highlands of, of the Northwest, they, in some ways, look older. They're frost-shattered, the, the rock exposed. There can be a more of a barren, aged appearance to the Highlands. Beautiful, though they undoubtedly are. There's, in, in Perthshire, where, where you've got Glenlyon, it, it's greener and gentler and more rounded. So it's very easy on the eye. I think it's a lovely place. There is a loneliness about it, not least because it's not particularly heavily populated. And so, you know, there's a silence there and an absence of people in certain points where you can be alone with yourself and you can get away from the ceaseless chatter of the modern world and you can even allow yourself to forget who you are and just be there. Just be there like another living thing. Make a bit like the Fortingall you and just just be there as the Fortingall you has been for 9,000 years. And I've said it before about other places, maybe if you only had the time or the opportunity to target one of these places, you know, I've said before, maybe make it Iona or, or maybe make it the Ness of Brodgar. Well, without a shadow of a doubt, I would say 
if you only had the opportunity to target one, you might want to go and see the Fortingall U. Because if it's if it's 9,000 years old, you'll never again in your life have the opportunity to stand beside or in the shadow of anything in the whole of Europe that's been alive for longer than that blessed tree. And I, I just, I don't care to find out that any of that isn't true. I would rather retain and celebrate the possibility of all of it. All of it. The 9,000 years, the legend of Pontius Pilate, all of the other human stories that have unfolded around it, that are that are woven through it, somehow somehow have become part of the Fortingall U. I want and I believe, damn it, that all of it's true. Shining armour, knights on horseback, and a defiant army led by Robert the Bruce. A lazy, meandering river, an extinct volcano, with a grand, mighty castle sitting high upon its crag and tail. A bold, self-assured abbey where Scotland's future was plotted and planned. History hangs in the air here, so thick you can almost feel it brush against your face. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out Neil Oliver Love Letter, the podcast's Instagram account. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you can try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.